0: Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is one of my closest pals and the most frequent guest on the show, Seth Godin, best-selling author and um, blogger. You can't be a best-selling blogger, I don't think. You can be an influential blogger. Well, you are. You're maybe but the most would, influential blogger. I would
1: blog even if I wasn't read... But yes, I'm a blogger too.
0: And I wanted to start the year of podcasting by talking to you because I find that whenever we talk, it's incredibly centering and it helps uh, sort of give me a North Star for the next little while. And um, you and I go back and forth frequently. We have frequent dinners where we talk about stuff, but somehow when we're talking on the mic, it forces. Uh, it forces us
1: to find a certain kind of clarity of, of thought, I think. One of the singular highlights of each and every year that I do this, it is something I think about for weeks beforehand and listen to in the car afterwards. Great. So
0: let's let's get into it. I, I did write you some of the things I'd been thinking about and wanting to talk about, and a bunch of it is... Stuff that occurred to me as I took a um, a break from working on the TV show, I, I made myself not do any billions work for six or seven days as the holiday started. Um, so that i I, I don't could... think people realize
1: how hard you work on that show.
0: Oh, well, you know because a couple times a season I come to
1: where we are right now, your office
0: to just say, uh, I need to vent my
1: uh, feelings of failure. the craft it's worth mentioning the craft because. It's possible to produce a TV show with less blood sweat and tears than you and David put into it we know that this is possible we also know that the craft that you guys put into it shows up and it's important to you and it's important to your the viewers
0: thank you um, for saying that I don't I, I'm not sure that you can really do the thing that we do without working that hard but that might you know part of a core belief of mine is about and well, it's yours too, is has bigger.
1: Five times as many hours of television a week as you do. So, what are they doing? Working five times as many hours as you do? Well, no. they might have a different goal. Exactly. But it's possible to make TV without throwing yourself on the tracks. That's I, guess, all I, I guess it is. Yes. Um,
0: but here, here's where I wanted to start today. And it feeds off of some of the other things we've talked about. But I want to. Often people will ask the two of us about how they know if they're talented enough to do the thing. Yeah. Right. And I know you've thought about this question a lot and you blogged something that came out of a podcast with, that Kevin Pollack and I did together. Sure. And your position was actually slightly um, at angles with to Kevin's position. <laughs> a close reading of the end of your <laughs> blog post um, was uh, not critical of Kevin's position, but sort of tried to put some air between uh, his position, which is, if you're not doing this, you know, which is, uh, look, those of us who choose to do this work are special in some right. way. I don't, and, I don't agree with him at all. And in that part, you don't agree. What you both agree on is do that dabbling is unnecessary.
1: Well, I think one of the things that was interesting to see when desktop publishing came along, is that the typesetters were furious and that when photography got cheaper, the photographers were furious. And the photographers are still furious when someone has a wedding and uses amateur photography for their wedding. Don't they know how hard this person worked to become a professional photographer? And so I begin with, if you are starting your day by saying to the amateurs and the dabblers, don't you know, then you're already off on the wrong foot. That what you have to accept is there are amateurs and there are dabblers and you have to be so much more committed to the craft that the amateurs and the dabblers just look at you mouth open and say, that person is worth paying. That person is worth watching because they are such a different league. But what you don't get to do is yell at the people who are doing the work for free. Because they're allowed to do the work for free. Well, the word work is crucial, though.
0: And I I might interpret what Kevin said slightly differently. Because Kevin's talking about being at a party and someone coming up and saying, I dabble in comedy. And he says, I dabble in dentistry. Right. And he says, nobody says they dabble in dentistry. And what I, how I interpret that is not as a claim to a greater talent but as a claim to harder work. Exactly. That we agree on. As a claim to um, don't stand at a party and tell me that you are funny. Go be funny. Exactly. And be funny and, and work hard enough at being funny that you don't have to tell me you're funny. So let's go back
1: to your original question about talent. Okay? Yeah. So who has the talent to ride a bicycle? Nobody has the talent to ride a bicycle. What they have is the capability of doing the work to become someone who can ride a bicycle. And I think most of the things that people can do for a living in 2019 America are things like bike riding. They're not things like hitting a super high note in the opera. I'm going to
0: start at a play. That's a great super high note in opera is great, but here's where I want to start. And it's a, at first, going to seem more disempowering than empowering, which is the opposite of where I usually start. Because, as you know, something you and I agree on always is, uh, if you have, uh, if you have a dream or a notion that you have a capacity within yourself, that's not only okay, but but go ahead and go after it with rigor. Mm-hmm. don't sit around the, as you said on the very first podcast we ever did together don't go to the coffee shop and act like a screenwriter start writing screenplays yeah but i was listening to the song if you see her say hello mm-hmm. by bob dylan the mm-hmm. other day and recently as you know the blood on the tracks they the these different versions of the songs on Blood on the Tracks have been released. It's true. And there have been books written. I read the book about the making of Blood on the Tracks 10 or 12 or 14 years ago, and Bob worked really hard to get that album right in what he saw. But in listening to If You See Her Say Hello and hearing that melody and that first line, you know, if you see her say hello, she might be in Tangier. It, it, it hit me again that there uh, there is a level there is to me and I want to ask you a talent differential and again I'm saying I know this is a disempowering beginning but mm-hmm. I, it's going to get somewhere good I, I uh, perhaps only Bob Dylan could have written that melody and that lyric Be, and Bob Dylan was able to do that even now he wrote that when he was like 30 but he was able to do that when he was 21 or 22 hmm And so, how do you apprehend the once in a generation talent? And how does that fit in to the way you see this stuff?
1: So, who was the Bob Dylan of 1685 or 1740? We have no idea. It's not that Bob Dylan was a once in a millennial talent, it's that. We needed a Bob Dylan in the 60s, and someone had to be the famous Bob Dylan. But there are tons of poets, tons, with the talent of Bob Dylan who aren't famous. And so I think we have to begin by differentiating between famous geniuses and unfamous geniuses, right? Now, what is Bob's skill? I believe his skill is that he, unlike most people, can almost effortlessly move himself to a zone where a different, call it the muse, is able to speak. And that zone is available to many people. Bob does it through practice and diligence his whole life, right? And it's his practice, it's his craft to move the feeling, right? So if you've ever felt the feeling of diving off a 10 foot diving board. The moment in between I'm standing on the board and I'm not standing on the board, there's a feeling, a shift. That same posture shift can occur before you go on stage and give a speech. You're nervous and then you're not, something shifts. Well, I think that the shift of the poet, the writer, the musician is you let something go and that other voice comes out. I've seen you do it when you write screenplays. What do you think you're letting go? The uh, rational mind, the resistance, whatever you want to call it, that says, whoa, 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 don't do that. It's not ready yet. Don't say that out. Don't write it down because then you might have to do it. And when I think of my 30 years of projects, that the difference between those two things, those moments, that's what I've built my entire career around.
0: My question to you is this. Do you feel it's just more useful to think that Bob Dylan isn't special, innately special? It, do you think that there's just a utility in thinking that, uh, that it's it's functionally better to think that than not think it?
1: Or do you actually think it? I actually think that Bob Dylan does not have a particular array of neurons and genes that make him magical. I do not believe he is magical. I believe he is a really hardworking person who persisted in the face of a lot of criticism when almost everyone else would have folded. And I also think he's enormously lucky. Lucky to have been born when he was born. Lucky to have left Minnesota when he left Minnesota. Lucky to have met... um, What's his name? Dave in the streets of Greenwich Village. Lucky to have Dave Van, Ronk. Dave Van Ronk. Lucky to have met Woody toward the end. Lucky, 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 lucky. You and I are super lucky. You both we've both stated that. So what I think is that commercial success is at least 90% luck, but you can help that luck along if you are A, persistent and B dig into the craft that the marketplace you're seeking to serve rewards is another way to look at it though so i'm
0: not sure that i think it's empowering to believe or i don't find it empowering to believe that any of us could be bob dylan because the level of you take the luck out of it and by the way if you're listening to this and bob dylan isn't your cuppa substitute for this, whoever you find to be the great genius. If it's, it could be Prince, it could be Zora Neale Hurston. It doesn't,
1: it doesn't matter to me. Right. And now it's super easy because stars last so much less because we're looking at people from retrospect, right? So I don't think that the person who has one hit YouTube video, most people think is a genius. Right. Right. So somewhere along the way, how many hit things do you have to have before you move from this is a mortal to this is somebody who had, who got some unattainable but, thing?
0: But I want to stay with it as Dylan for a okay, second. go be- ahead. Because in particular, a song like If You See Her Say Hello, which by the way, stop, feel free to, even if you don't think you like Bob Dylan, he sings it very clean and it's um, a melody you can't get out of your head for, from when you hear it one time. To me, I guess I think it's useful to know that I don't have to be Bob Dylan in order to be a creative artist. Right. That, which is the other another way that I want to look at it, which is why I said
1: it is empowering, which is, what if Bob Dylan? Okay. What if Bob Dylan actually? You can still be a good person, even if you're not from Krypton the Man of Steel, right? Yeah, it's entirely possible. The question sure. is, if you're I'll not, you by, if you're not, by, if you don't happen to if have that you, set of neurons.
0: Well, be, because... Um, do you really believe that talent, that there is, um, a roughly equal distribution of talents that this is a question, Amy and I, we had dinner with you and your, your wife and one of your kids Saturday night with our kids at, at your house, you cooked a wonderful meal for us. But as we left, we all were in the car talking about how smart you are and how smart your son, Alex is your son, Mo is smart too. He just as smart, he just wasn't at dinner. Not smart enough to come to dinner. He wasn't, well, he was too busy being smart in other places. But, but here's, here's the question, right? It doesn't seem to me that there's necessarily an equal distribution. Now, Nassim's led to this whole run about how um, uh, IQ itself doesn't matter. You can, there, there's an unequal distribution of this stuff, let's say, but it doesn't have anything to do with predicting success, really, long term. I'm not sure I think there's an equal distribution of talent. And I I feel that perhaps saying there is sends a message to people who look at their neighbor and and wonder about it. Uh, To me, it's like, I just think you can overcome some of these disparities in other ways. Okay, so what do you really think
1: because we're having a semantic conversation here, but let's get really clear. No, I don't want to be semantic about it. I want to talk about no question that nothing is equally distributed nothing if nature is involved it's lumpy every time there's no question if nature is involved it's lumpy awesome right? i love that yeah but we don't know what talent is so since we don't know what talent is it's really hard for me to point to where the lumps are what do you mean we don't know where talent is well there are plenty of people who were very successful AR people and they heard the beatles or they heard bob dylan and they said not gonna work. So as a r people, where'd their talent go, right? Or if we look at someone who has perfect pitch and can play the guitar better than Bob Dylan, we can say, well, that person has talent. Bob Dylan doesn't because, right? So what exactly is Bob Dylan's talent? Because I don't know how to tell you where it lives.
0: Yeah, I don't either. It's in writing, so I guess you would say, it's in being able to, well, I guess this is the lucky part, right? It's being able to write songs that are what the people in the time in which he was living turned out
1: needed to hear. And I think that might be a skill. And what I'm trying to get at here is, have you ever written one stanza as good as Bob Dylan on a pretty good day? Of course you have. No way. Of course you have. One back and forth of dialogue in billions? Once? Once? Of course, on a... Of course you have. You haven't written, uh, you know. A body uh, of work like Bob Dylan Tangled up in right. But yeah. like once, right? Have I ever once written a paragraph as good as Isaac Asimov or Frank Herbert? Of course I have. Right? It, one paragraph? Sure. Almost yes. anyone can do a paragraph. Well, if you can do a paragraph, can you do a page? At what point do I have to start saying you're not capable of being in the pantheon because you could do a paragraph or a page, but you can't do oh, a Oh, this part. is really
0: good. Okay. This is really good. This gets to the empowering new year thing. If I would have thought I had to be as good as David Mamet, I don't think I would have been able to write the first screenplay. I was comfortable thinking to mm-hmm. myself that David Mamet's set of skills or I don't you don't have to call it talent, that David Mamet's polished set of skills. Yeah were beyond mine, but that I could, if I tried my best to do the best work I could do, Uh I might be able to carve out a career and a life and figure out what I wanted to say and then say it professionally. I think that's a
1: really cool way to say it. Let me try an aligned thing, which is from the new book. Infinity is a real problem in all of this because a lot of people who listen to you, a lot of people who want to do their craft think they want to do it for everyone, for the masses, for a large number. And the problem with infinity is it's a very, very big number. And it's like dividing by zero. You're never going to hit it. But the alternative is the smallest viable audience. So you don't have to write a song that goes to number one. You just have to write something that 10 people are going to hum in the car tomorrow, 10 that you don't have to write a screenplay that wins an Academy Award. You just have to write a screenplay that 20 people who saw it will say, this is one of the best movies I saw this year. That group, by by putting yourself on the spot, it turns out that's harder than it looks. Because if you announce that I am here for those 50 people, you better please them, because you only picked 50. You didn't pick infinity, you picked 50. And suddenly, we discover... It's possible. So you're sitting around the campfire, it's the last night of camp, there's 100 people there. Can you play a Joni Mitchell cover that those 100 people will wanna sing along to? Can you do it for them? Well, of course you can. But if you insist that no, it has to be at the Coliseum, then you're never going to get to where you want to go. Well, this ties in to Roseanne
0: Cash and Getty Lee, actually, because right. Roseanne Cash who was on the podcast, talks about playing for 6% of the people exactly. every night, the 6% who are really there for the reasons that exactly. she can connect to. And Getty Lee refuses to think of himself really as someone who had a massive audience, even though they're one of the biggest bands in the history of rock and roll to him they were never a mainstream act. They were playing for rush fans. Exactly. And rush fans were separate and distinct exactly. from everybody else.
1: But the reason so, so I'm- now we have the practical thing for the new year. The practical thing for the new year is stop hiding behind Bob Dylan, either way. That instead say, Where are my hundred? Where are my thousand? Are there a thousand people who will come out for me to see me perform because I've done enough work? That those thousand people will get value.
0: I'm talking about the other part of it though. So yes, but then the the reverse part of that is the feeling uh, if I, so when I was young and I would see Speed the Plow, the -hmm. David Mamet play, the magic trick of that play, the way that they spoke, the, the way that that dialogue let you in on an entire world, an insular world with a language and customs and cultures of its own, but was somehow hilarious to me at 19. Mm -hmm. It didn't have the effect of making me, I loved it in a way that I could hardly put into words. It, it, it immediately changed everything about me, who I was, but it seemed impossible. It was a magic trick of such high order that it didn't just seem like a collection of, um, Uh, Learned skills, right? What it seemed to me like was, um, I could never do that, so I better not try
1: again for eleven years, right? I was
0: nineteen. I was
1: sitting like two rows away from you because I saw it too. Um, Here's the deal: your interpretation is completely wrong, right? No, that's what I'm saying. Is you know what the magic trick actually is? Because imitating David Mamet is extraordinarily easy. It's really easy to write a parody of a David Mamet dialogue. Like people riff on *Glengarry* Gary all the time, right? And- You could be describing my whole career, by the way. <laughs> so I, don't so. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think yes, so. That's fine. I don't think so. but go ahead. Um, the hard part was doing the trick the first time. The hard part was coming up with the David Mamet form of dialogue. That he came the up Aaron, with, yes. Right, which is different than the Aaron Sorkin form, which is different than the Brian and David form. Yes. Coming up with your own form, yes. that is the hard part. That is the art. The rest of it is the practice of the of the craft.
0: Yes, but so how do we, so you're right. Of course, you say to yourself, well, a small audience is fine. I, but the other thing that happens, and Pressfield writes about this, and Julia Cameron writes about this, and I write about it a lot on online uh, also, and, and you've written about it is, it's not about well, how do I find an audience at first? It's about how do I get myself to show up when, when what I want to do is create something that feels or sounds to me that it's as good as Speed the
1: Plow. Right, wrong question. Right, but so how do you train yourself to ask a different question? Right. the different question is the first time Andy Kaufman got up to do Andy Kaufman, he slipped into something. He put on the Andy Kaufman jacket. The first time Bob Dylan showed up to be Bob Dylan, he said, today I'm going to be Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan could have become an actuary. He could have become whatever, right? So if Van Gogh had lived 100 years before or after, he would have used a different medium. It's not like he was born to do the impressionistic thing. So for me, it's this acting as if. If this thing I'm creating is going to become a new format, a new style, a thing I could be parodied for. What would I do in that situation? Go invent that. How do you control the emotions though?
0: Right? Because we are, we are most of us, um, triggered by our emotions pretty heavily, right? And so the emotion of, because eventually, this is the thing, eventually Levine and I got to a place, that's my creative partner, we got to a place where we had speed the plow on our desk at all times. Mm-hmm. And in a moment of, uh, some kind of either desperation or joy or uh, some moment, one of us, a couple times a year, would just grab Speed the Plow and read the other guy a page of it as a way, mostly because it's the most accurate thing I've ever written about Hollywood. Often we would get off the phone with an agent or a producer who would be full of shit. And we would just read ourselves a page of Speed the Plow. And e- eventually it became to us totemic, right? It, sure. and it became totemic of... Um, so, so large as to almost disappear actually, right. because it was such a part of, of the fabric of You're who we were. are fishing the water. And, and, and we don't notice the exactly. Water. Right. We don't even notice the water anymore as Wallace tells the old story. And so eventually it stopped being something that uh, challenged me and made me feel small, right. but it just became something that existed like the sun. And so, okay, the sun gives some warmth. I'm going to take advantage of whatever that, that warmth is. That's a long battle. Emotionally, someone's listening to this. They've made a promise to themselves. The promise yep. to themselves was, I'm going to finally accept that my dream is to do X. Yep. But then in the morning when they get up and their husband looks at them and is like, well. Are you serious? It ain't. Yeah, are you serious? And then they glance at their bookshelf or their album stack or their the painting on their wall and they're like, Oh, fuck, right. I'm a mere mortal. Exactly. So what's the emotional
1: trick, Seth? So I I want to give you the emotional trick. I got to give you something else. (laughs) You know, if you go to a coach because you want to run the marathon, you don't get to say to the coach, show me how to run a marathon without getting tired. No one can run a marathon without getting tired. So instead, you say to the coach, show me where to put the tired. Show me how to do this while I am still tired, not make the tire go away. So 3,000 people have taken the Alt-MBA. So I've watched this happen. They write something every day for 30 days in public, in air quotes, public because there's 120 other people get to see what they write. 120 other people are gonna see that thing you wrote. And the first week is fraught. You can feel people sweating through the internet, right? It's fraught. And then the second week, it's close to people burning out. And the third week, people start to hit their rhythm. And the fourth week, they say, I can't believe I did this. And then two years later, they send me a note and they say, I'm still going. And it's not a creative writing process, right? The Alt-MBA is about learning to see and work in the world. It's not about how do you become Bob Dylan or, or Hemingway. But the point is, if you ship the work and ship the work and ship the work, you will discover that it's a craft. And if you keep waiting for the lightning bolt to hit you, it will never hit you. But if you are shipping the work, you start parodying yourself. And that parodying of yourself, and I know you felt this when you're you're talking, well, that sounds like us, right? Boom, you did it. And now you're a professional because you created something that was worth parodying productively and you can do it again and again and again.
0: Right. I mean, I don't, I don't. You're talking about a voice, finding a
1: voice. But it's not just in writing. It's no, in everything. It's finding a voice in whatever yeah. And you the only do. way you find it is by speaking.
0: I mean, whoever designed uh the the Porsche found a voice, right? Mm-hmm. Whoever designed I mean the famous Ferrari guy right. found Enzo. That. Yeah. Enzo Ferrari found the found what that meant. Exactly. And even the cars that look different, they're clearly from a um and I'm not an expert on cars, but you could be a you know, a hundred sure. yards away and be like, well, that's a Ferrari." You could just hear it. You don't you just, have to see right, it. Right, you don't even have to see it. You just you just know, and that comes from work. But if I try to translate what you said about the tired and the marathon, you're saying the self-doubt is the tired. Yeah. And that the self-doubt, it, it's a, uh, a fool's game to say, I'm going to eliminate the self-doubt. Can't what you're away. saying is, I'm going to learn. Oh, it's the Jim Carroll thing of making friends with the monkey. When Kurt Cobain died, Jim Carroll made this great poem, 88 lines about Kurt. And, and um, in it, he says something about, I wish you would have asked me about the monkey. And he says, you know, I, I just learned to talk to the monkey. Yeah. I learned to negotiate. Invite him in for tea. Right. And, but that's hard to do, man. Of
1: course it is. If there, if it wasn't hard, there wouldn't be a scarcity of people like you and me. Right. This is our only hard work that we do. The only hard part.
0: And so you, yeah. So the only hard part you're saying is to make friends with the self-doubt and to know how to put the self-doubt just a little bit of the way down the table when you're going to write and or create or do whatever it is that you do.
1: Yeah. Like, so three, four, five times I've said I'm done with publishing. I'm never going to publish another book. I see the pattern. I'm not an idiot, right? But I understand that's part of my pattern. That part of my pattern is... I need to feel like I'm coming from behind or out of left field in order to launch this next thing. Well, right.
0: You've told me many times you were done with publishing and I told you you weren't. Um, and uh, you had this book that was a bestseller on the New York Times list. And this year, I mean, you wrote this book and it it worked on all the levels a book was supposed to work on. You're very careful about how You uh, take in criticism of the work because that's, uh, I mean, coupled with part of the self-doubt is that we all have, I think we all have certain people who've somehow, um, somehow found a way to, 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 there's that expression people, people use now, which is you're letting them live in your mind rent free. People say it about the president a
1: lot, you know, Uh
0: but we all have people who are living in our minds rent free. And, uh, and so public criticism stands in for those people's voices, sure. really. That's what you're feeling and hearing, right? It could be a certain teacher, a certain person who stopped being your friend in seventh grade, um, a certain- pr- Or it could just be self-doubt in, in the general sense. It doesn't have to be associated with a human. Sure. Yeah. But I think a lot of us actually have a human sure. or an institution mm-hmm. that a rejection, a, a particular thing that echoed in a way, many of us have. Right. And so when you've, Finished your manuscript of the new book because you won't even go on, you know, you basically won't go on Twitter. You won't, you're not interested in, in certainly none of us are interested in criticism. Once the thing is finished.
1: Oh, you'd be surprised.
0: It, well, yes. I, I, and I read all the, re- I do read all the reviews, but they don't, <sighs> they don't affect me. Um, uh, how, how did you gird yourself because you by your, your, uh, uh, it's, it's an avowed point of view that criticism hurts you. You've said it publicly many times. You're like, I don't, I'm not good. Yeah,
1: it's a semantic thing again. The word critic, there's lots of different kinds of criticism. Um, So if Nikki Papadopoulos gives me criticism, I'd pay her a million dollars for that. Yes, sure. Right? So it's not all criticism. Okay, good.
0: But how do you, this is the question. How do you, um, Incorporate criticism. Right. How do you synthesize it, as opposed to okay, so having let's, emotional let's, reactions? Let's try to make to this it. a little
1: bit uh, more useful. Which is, I begin with this: reassurance is futile. That there's not never enough reassurance in the world. So if you're looking for everything's going to be fine, the self doubt will go away. You can record what I just said and repeat it that ten thousand times, but it's not going to be enough. Reassurance is futile. Don't look for that. But the other side of it is that criticism can be a trap because it's a way to hide. Because what you can do Go deeper on this—is yeah. you can the self-doubt can pick out the criticism that addressed the thing that made it the nervous, most nervous, amplify it and use it to keep you from going there again. And so, if you don't want to amplify your self-doubt. Don't expose yourself to criticism that the the self-doubt wants to hear. Yeah. If it's
0: your mother who always told you you can't be an artist, and if it's your mother's voice that's in your head when you don't show up to do the work, don't show the work to your mother until it's published. Ever. Don't don't show show the work to your mother because what you're doing is you're saying please stop me from taking this chance. Exactly, And so don't give people who are going to stop you or institutions that are going to stop you the power. Now the problem is it's incredibly seductive because part of you is
1: doing the work to show your mother or whatever the stand in for mother is. And the culture has created this environment. Like, You didn't mean to throw shade, but the way you talked to me about about criticism made me feel bad about the fact that I'm isolating myself from criticism because if I was really a good professional, I'd be open to the criticism because it would make me better. So there is this perception in our culture that the creator should be eager to hear from the masses or the mob because they're the audience and they deserve to be heard. And so there's this famous back and forth with Howard Stern. Have you ever heard this guy? Calls in and says to Howard Stern, I heard you say this and I want to tell you my opinion. Howard, Stern, I don't want to hear your opinion. He goes, what are you talking about? I'm the customer. Howard Stern says, I don't care. If you don't want to listen to the show, don't listen to the show. And the guy's like, but wait a minute, free speech. And Howard Stern says, no, you don't understand. I don't care. I don't want your opinion. Don't care. So
0: I'm at dinner the other night. I'm to- I didn't tell you this. I saw you since, but I didn't tell you this. Okay. Uh, where? Oh, no, I didn't see you. Okay, sorry. We had dinner Saturday night, then I went away. Now I'm back. Okay. Now it's the next Saturday, actually. <laughs> yes, right. exactly. So, so uh, we we have dinner with these people. One guy is sort of a family friend. I've known him a long time. He's in the finance business. and We're at this big dinner, with 18 people. And this guy leans across the table, out of nowhere, unbidden, and says, Brian, can I tell you why I don't watch your show? <laughs> and I'm sitting next to my daughter on one side, Amy's on the other side, my wife. Sammy <laughs> blissfully was like down the table a little so he didn't have to uh, hear this. And, um, I it just decided in the moment not to be polite. Yeah. And I said, no. Why would I want to hear that? Exactly. I said, there are two things you can say to me. One is I enjoy your show. Two is nothing. <laughs> there's, there's, <laughs> not, there's, there's no reason I want to invite that into my head right now. Of course, right and it's also now. not.
1: The show isn't for him because if the show is for him, he would already be watching this.
0: Yes. Show. And he then said, Well,
1: it's that, and, and what it was about. And this and is the useful to say part, anyway, even though it's, you're it's that you told me. What it's
0: always about is that people, uh, it's never about you or the work. Yeah. It's about their own either neurosis or ego. And he said to me, Well, I'm in finance and I felt you were making fun of me and people like me, which sadly for him gave me the opportunity to say, Listen to me, pal, I promised you this. I didn't think of you once. (laughs) 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 And so you do have to draw these uh, boundaries for yourself. Years ago, by the way, I might have invited it in and it
1: might have hurt my feelings. And you end up, so, you know, the number of people in America who read books is a microscopic percentage of the number of people in America. And the number of people who read books, who read the kind of books I write, is a micro percentage. Percentage of that. So if I thought about all the people who wouldn't read my book under any circumstances when I was writing a book, that would be stupid, right? Now the second half of your question from a couple of minutes ago. Yes. Well, then how do I improve? How do I think about right? Well, and so how do you then invite
0: in criticism? You because you did send you sent a uh, I think a cohort that you had cultivated early versions of the book. And you exactly. wa- you wanted, wasn't merely praise, you wanted constructive thoughts. You wanted to know how it hit these people. Uh-huh. So can you talk a little bit about how you process that, how that doesn't defeat you, how you choose? Because the, yes, you shouldn't show right. your mother if it's your mother's voice, but you should find a way, I think, or I'm asking you, should one find a way yeah. to improve the work by seeing how it hits certain people. Okay, so
1: I have to tell you the clock radio story. Tell any story There are, you are want. these things called focus groups that people in marketing do, and here's what you do. You get a little trailer you set up near a shopping mall. You go into the shopping mall, you pick people by how they look, which is stupid demographically. You pay them 50 bucks, promise them 50 bucks, and they come to this room and there's cameras and somebody who's not the brand manager puts this object on the table and a conversation takes place. In the wrong hands, they're really stupid. They almost never work. So in this case, it's a clock radio. This is years ago. There's 10 people around the table. Everyone's chiming in with their point of view about the clock radio. And toward the end of the thing, they say, so what do you think this clock radio is to sell for? $100, $110. So everyone chimes in. The lowest number anyone says is $80. And then at the end of the interview, the, the organizer says, thank you so much for coming. Your feedback's been great. Here's the deal. We promised you 50 bucks. But if you prefer, you can have the clock radio instead, which you all said was worth more than 80. And not one person took the clock radio. So there's the only thing you actually learned from the focus group is that people have an opinion, but they weren't actually going to buy it. So for me, my writing gets better when I watch people in the wild who have read it or have interacted with it. So in the case of this new book, Marketing Seminar, which we're running right now, um, I've seen 6,000 people work with my work. And I saw they all got stuck on this concept. So when I wrote the book, I made that concept more clear. That now no one's in the position of giving me criticism. They're actually working with the work. Harder to do with a novel or a movie. Got it. Okay. So my point to people who have written a novel or a movie is you should almost certainly not send the whole thing to a lot of people and let them vote on it. But it makes a lot of sense to send people you care about a chapter and see how many of them insist that you send them the next chapter. That people read part of your screenplay and you see how many people say, what happens at the end? Because if people aren't wondering what happens at the end, you've just done a real life focus group of will you buy the clock radio? So yeah.
0: that's I, really smart. You don't have to take it literally either. You don't have to do it literally. The, the idea being find a way to see if, if the effect you're trying to create correct. works. Right. Now, the marketing book, though, you did send the complete manuscript to, let's say, eight friends of yours. Right. Ten friends of yours, whatever the number is. It's much smaller than that. Five. Doesn't matter. The point is you sent it to a few of us. Uh-huh. And you wanted comments. Right. Why?
1: Okay. How does that serve you? So there are two kinds of comments that I hope for. I rarely get the first kind, but the second kind makes it still worth it. The first kind is chiropractic care. Significant spinal surgery to say, you know what? If you move these three chapters to the end and wrote 300 words about this, lights will turn on. Like every once in a while that will happen to me, very rarely. That's a spectacular kind of feedback. And I I will tell you that, because I have a high opinion of myself about certain small item list of things, I'm good at this for other people. And I've been thrilled to be able to do it for published authors and help them do a jujitsu on that thing. The second uh, reason is because, not because I want people to praise it, but because I want them to dare me to amplify something, right? Every once in a while, I will send something to people and they'll say, you can do better than this. And that's great too. That simple sentence. And that doesn't hurt you. No, not at all. I look for that. Right. Right? So in working with Megan Casey, who used to be my editor, Nikki Papadopoulos, who's my editor now, in the old days, you could get 40 hours of a book editor's time because they only worked on a few books that mattered to them like that a year. Now, if you're lucky, you get four hours of their time because the systems have changed. But for Nikki to be able to point out to me that there were three places where it really wasn't working, and there are four other things I got. So the the memo is only four sentences long. That's all I needed, right? That a fellow traveler who knows how to do the craft of giving me feedback gave me those those key lines. That's the kind of notes that I need. I don't respond to you know what? On page 17 you use this word and I thought this word would be better. Like, no, I got other people for that at the end. Don't don't I don't need your help with that.
0: Fellow traveler yes. is a great expression and a great way to think about who you should exactly. enlist in your journey. Yes. And a fellow traveler doesn't mean someone who's already in Wyoming if you're starting out in New York. Right. Yeah. A fellow traveler is someone somewhere along the path that you're going, somewhere close to where you are.
1: Yeah. The whole mentor. Perhaps they've made the trip. The mentor thing is way overrated because talk about this. Well, first of all, the math of it doesn't scale because the number of people who are successful who can mentor the number of people who need to be mentored doesn't work. Number two is. It's usually an uneven exchange in the sense that you're asking someone who is busy and leveraged to stop that and start doing something else with you. But the real reason is people who are successful are almost never good at actually coaching people who aren't successful yet. It's a totally different skill set, right? I, I learned how to swim as an adult. I knew how to swim my whole life, but I knew how to swim well from a guy named Bill Boomer who had the biggest pot belly you ever saw and one arm. And Bill was the consulting coach to the U.S. Olympic swim team. And you look at this guy and you say, you couldn't even make it across the pool. He didn't need to make it across the pool. He needed to know how to teach swimming. And so if you're busy looking to get Steven Spielberg to send you notes on your screenplay, I think you're making a mistake. Yes. On the other hand, people
0: who I'm skeptical of people who've never done it. So I'm skeptical of supposed writing teachers
1: unless, who haven't published. Unless their students have published well, because then they have proven the, that they're good writing the teachers. The reason
0: that I don't include Robert McKee in when I say that every screenwriting teacher is bullshit. If they haven't written their own movies, if they haven't written their own television series generally, almost always, I think they are useless and should be avoided. The reason I don't include Robert McKee is people like Akiba Goldsman have personally told me they don't think they would have become mm-hmm. the screenwriters they've, they became, meaning Academy Award winning or sure. nominated screenwriters if they hadn't taken McKee's course. So I have to accept that even if I don't understand why, that Robert McKee has value for sure. some okay. people that be, because, as you say, enough testimonials from people who don't aren't don't need to give a testimonial have shown shown up smart people, people who are in the craft as I am that I accept it. But generally. Right. I want I want to engage with people doing what I'm doing. So at whatever stage along the way, I want to in, 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 engage. And,
1: but I would group. say that you have the skill of hearing from a working person and translating it into useful action on yes. your part. If you didn't have that skill, most of the feedback you're getting from working people is going to fall by the wayside because you have to learn how to process it. Uh, I agree. I, I
0: actually don't. I think screenwriting can be taught but only you. I think you can only teach yourself. I think ultimately you can only teach yourself. Most things
1: you can only teach yourself. But, but, it but
0: the works that's out there, you can go get now. David Levine, who I wrote the first screenplay all with, I mean every all, every screenplay but one that became a movie I wrote with Dave, um, and the one I wrote alone happened years later when I was very much professional. He and I talked a lot about the form of a screenplay in the beginning because he had written two screenplays as a young person trying to Mm -hmm. learn this. Um, But generally I learned writing screenplays by reading and watching, right? Reading screenplays and watching movies. But to go back to the question, Seth, uh, how did you train yourself to not take that kind of feedback in a negative personal way when other kinds of feedback can hurt your feelings? Why doesn't this kind of feedback hurt your feelings? Okay,
1: so... Hurt my feelings is a, is a phrase I've probably used with you, but I didn't mean it the way it sounds. Okay.
0: You I, used it publicly too, that's yeah, on the podcast, okay, but, so that's okay. why I wanna.
1: The mob is not my friend. I don't have get any pleasure if the mob is in favor of me, and I'm afraid of the mob most of the time. And so that sort of feedback, which is the way I feel about Amazon reviews, is not designed to be helpful nor do I find it helpful. But if I'm talking to somebody who knows what they're talking about and knows how to be incisive and I can benefit from it. So Bob Dwarf, the guy who invented the Harvey Wallbanger and a great PR guy for years and years, saw my talk 15 years ago and he said, do you have a couple minutes? And he gave me five minutes of feedback about how I was ending my talk. And I was like, this is gold. This isn't, hurting my feelings, this is someone who sees what I see, who wants what I want, who's been on a journey, being able to say, oh, this, have you thought about that? That's different than you're not a good person and we all hate you. Did you ever have that feeling though,
0: or maybe you never did, you know, you often tell the story about the failures leading to the successes when you were a book packager, but I've definitely had that feeling at various times where when feedback was bad on something where it was very hard to get out of bed. And I guess I'm going to, I'm going to go back to your analogy, right? It's when someone tries the run, you know, they did their long run on a Sunday and the long run, they, you know, probably should have done 10 and they did 14 and they just can't get themselves out of bed the next day when it's crucial that they get out of bed. They have to do the three miles or four, even just to keep right. the blood going. How can you just talk a little bit about self-talk, how you, the, the method by which, cause the running coach would say, and I've read those running magazines, they give you lots of tools to get yourself out sure. of bed and to run, right? What are the tools you used in the beginning when, when you weren't yet succeeding to get you to keep showing
1: up? So right behind you is a book called How to Remove Spots and Stains uh, by Professor Herb Barnt of the Philadelphia College of Textiles and Sciences an easy care book. That was my second book as a book packager. And I sold my first book the first day. And then it took me a year to sell that book. I wasn't just trying to sell that book. It took me a year to sell anything. And just before I sold it, uh, this woman made an offer to buy it for $3,000. And I declined the offer because I wanted to sell it to somebody else instead. And she said... Uh, you're a fraud. You will never work in New York again. I will do everything in my power to make sure you never work in New York again. And I was so crushed by the threat. I ended up taking it back from the person I wanted to sell to it and had she published it instead. And I was intimidated and I lost and I was trapped. Oof. And um, so lots of self-talk was necessary. Because after a year of being beaten up and rejected more than 800 times, I finally sold something to somebody who got the thing by threatening to destroy my career, right? So these feelings are real for everybody. So how did you self-talk after that? What did you do? So my dad had given me these cassettes, and I still believe this to be true. And we're seeing it now with the audio revolution, which we could talk about for one second in a minute. Um, It wasn't self-talk. It was Zig Talk. Zig Ziglar talked to me every day for three hours. For three hours a day, for three years, I listened to this guy, son of a preacher from, we did not have a lot in common, I gotta tell you. But, and I knew it by heart because there were only 72 hours worth of stuff. And that voice in my head took over because I didn't have the voice I needed in my head. And this guy was telling me stuff that was usually completely irrelevant. But the cadence of his voice reminded me of the best parts of his story. And some people get it from Pema Chadron, And some people get it from James Clear. Some, whatever it is, the running magazine. Some people get it
0: from Tim Ferriss. Some people get it from Tony Robbins.
1: You can get it from lots right. of different sources. And it's but Gretchen the, Rubin. But for me, the method is listen to the same thing over and over and over and over again.
0: It's not the content. Whether it's your own tape or someone's tape, right. find a way to repeat to yourself... The benefit of right. taking so, these. So Pressfield's
1: audiobook is really hard to find. But if you listen to Steve's voice, find one chapter, listen to that chapter a hundred times. The audiobook of which book? Uh, War of Art. Right. It doesn't matter which one you pick. I think this is about a practice of saying, I can't climb this mountain without ropes. Right. Without belay. Why is it so
0: hard, though? So this is the this is the, the question, right? Someone's listening to this. It's January 3rd. They are already saying to themselves, "This year is going to be no different. I'm gonna, I'm gonna show up six days in a row, and then the odds are they're right. I'm gonna stop. Yeah, and I'm gonna hate myself, and I'm gonna eat the whole pizza. So when then that person the, with the pizza, that's me. But the rest of it is not me because I just show up and do the work. But how, how?" I guess I'm. what's the practical way, just when that first voice starts coming, what's the Tamiflu
1: right. to deal with this so before it, it becomes right. so for the me, disease? For me, it, I get, I'm going to give you the two-part process. Part number one is I burned my boats, right? That the alternative was to be a teller in a bank. This is it. There's, there, so every time I felt like quitting, it's yeah. Do you really want to go to Chase and be a teller at Chase? Because those are my two choices. Well, that's not really true. You were Stanford. You had a Stanford no, 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 MBA. No, no, no. no, they were because I had reached the point this where if I had sent my resume to someone and yes. gone on an interview and hadn't lied appropriately. I wasn't going to get hired. Like my uncle took pity on me during that the darkest year, and I got a freelance gig. Building a spreadsheet that was so big it took the computer a minute to recalculate on the acquisition of six hospital, six nursing homes. So I had to visit nursing homes. You know that nursing home smell, right? So that made it – real. I didn't want to go get an interesting job because that – I would have slipped into it. I was like, no, bank, nursing home, th- these are the alternatives, and they're really clear because I yes. was in it. That's part one. Right? But – the other piece of that, which I want to warn people about is the essence of being a bootstrapper, of being a creative who's going to go down in this process, is your overhead has to be close to zero. You've got to be able to last. And so that means brown rice and black beans. It means living in a place way smaller than you can afford. It means making sure that you're not going to have to declare creative bankruptcy in three weeks if you don't sell something. And to translate it also,
0: it means if you have kids and you have a life, then you have to fit, you don't quit your job. Correct. You don't put yourself in the kind of pressure because that's the other question. People say, well, I have a career. What you do is you say, okay, what can I accomplish in 20 minutes a morning? Right. And 10 at night. And I'm going to find 30 minutes in the day and I'm going to tune the rest of it out. And you
1: delete Facebook and cancel your cable TV subscription and make it so that you're not. A, spending the money, and B, spending the time on things that feel comfortable because you've just made this commitment to this craft. And you should be honest with yourself, which is, if that sucks too hard, then just admit that you don't wanna really do it. And that you can be a walker, you don't have to run a marathon, just walk two miles a day, there's nothing wrong with that. You can write poetry on your blog, there's nothing wrong with that, right? But if you wanna be a professional at it, you're gonna get tired. And you got to build that into the, the, the deal because otherwise you're just going to keep fooling yourself. Paul Simon was always
0: tortured by the fact that he wasn't Bob Dylan. But the fact that he was tortured by that <laughs> fact still allowed him to write America, still allowed him to show up well, as a so if it was and in America.
1: If it was fuel, thanks, Paul. I appreciate right. it. If it wasn't fuel, you're a fool. Don't do that. If it's not going to help you do your craft, just let that go. No one else was keeping track of that. So, this gets to the thing that I
0: really wanted to talk about because it's the thing I've been thinking about privately the most. I'm 52 years old. Um, um, The last few years i have had the most successful time professionally, and my kids are in a good place. Amy and I are in a good place. And I've tried to think about what matters beyond. That stuff, right? We both care a lot about service to other people. But I've started to think a lot, and 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 this ties into the very first long conversation you and I ever had was about authenticity and the sort of foolishness of chasing auth- your view that the word authenticity is loaded in a way that it, it actually is meaningless in our society. But what I translate it into personally is the idea of being comfortable in my own skin. Mm-hmm. This is... What I think a lot about is how to get the dross out, how to get the bullshit out, not someone else's idea or not the the way people will say um, I'm I'm authentic or I am the real me. What I mean is the feeling Uh that I'm not fronting, that that I'm not putting it on, that I'm being consistent, but more than that. Oh, here's a way to think about it. I was talking to Brian Garner recently, the word expert, you know, the guy who wrote um, Modern American Usage. And Brian was came and visited me on set. And we were talking about how sometimes people will use the word good instead of well, but they'll do it on purpose. Athletes will say, I played real good. And I said to him, that doesn't bother me. And in fact, he said, but you would never say it. And I said, I, I could say I played good in a certain setting. And Brian said, well, I don't, Co- Brian Garner said, Well, I don't code shift. I will just say it the way that I say it. Now I didn't think of it as code shifting, right? And I was like, well, we could both actually be equal com- equally comfortable with who we are, and each think the other thing uh-huh. is odd. But but what I really was thinking about is like, in the way we, in the way we dress, in the way we comport ourselves, in the way we are exist online, if we could somehow get not just the self-doubt out of it, but the idea that we have to manage the perception of who we are out of it. If we can just sit how we want to sit, wear what we want to wear and kind of be who we want to be, would we? Be, is it a worthy goal? Is this idea of being comfortable in your skin self-defeating because it makes you not aspirational? Or is it in fact... The thing, because it ties into this thing you said of maybe you just want to really write poems on your blog, but you think you have to be something else. What is the value of trying to be comfortable in who you are?
1: So, 11 years ago, I wrote a blog post. Someone sent it to me this morning. It's only three sentences long. And what it says is maybe the reason everyone's always talking to you about price is because you're not giving them something else to talk about. And if we think about price is something that has nothing to do with money, we can realize that everything we do in an economy where there's scarcity has a price. That if you eat this, you didn't get to eat that. Or if you eat a whole pizza, you get to gain a pound. Everything has a price. So is there a price for showing up in a way that doesn't feel completely authentic to you in the moment? Is there a, right? Of course. Every time you interact, there's a a price emotionally. Yes. Did it cost you something to get out of bed this morning? Because you would have rather just stayed in bed for three hours. Yes, it cost you something. But was it worth it? Did the price buy you something worthwhile? Not getting fired.
0: Well, telling the guy at the table, I don't want to hear what yep. you said. That I, I uh, maybe three years earlier, might have sat there. Out of a sense of politeness and ease. Now, this isn't this isn't to say be a dick. Right That being a uh, it's very easy to confuse being offend, being um, comfortable exactly. in your skin with being an asshole. That's not what I'm saying, but 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 when someone treats you like when they're an asshole, well, it depends. So
1: what the question is, if you had paid a nickel, yes, to say it in a way that would have prevented you from having blowback later, it might have been worth a nickel, right? And it would have been something like, a white lie to the extent of, you know, right now I'm feeling a lot of writer's block and I would appreciate it if we could talk about something other than my show. Right, if you had said that, then you wouldn't have to deal with whatever this guy was gonna to say to you or your dad or anybody else because he would go away and it would've cost you a nickname. Yeah, I mean, it turned out I was a hero
0: to everybody at the table. But like, you know, yeah. everyone wishes that that they would do that. But but beyond that, I'm talking about, this is why it's confident, that's why I wanted you to talk about it. Um. The ways in which sometimes we feel forced to lie. Sure. I've become less and less interested in. Uh-huh. And understanding the, the what I'm more interested in is just finding out how to show up just feeling like myself, like feeling like the version of me I like the best. And if you don't,
1: right. wh- so again, in a but-
0: polite way, and by the way, the version of me I like best isn't me being an asshole, no, it's me. No, it's actually
1: very similar to the version that I've heard for 100 episodes or 200 episodes at the moment. Right. This is who you are. Well, you, yeah, you, yeah, yes, you okay, know me so, well. Yeah. But, so my, but let's go back. Maybe it's because I have an MBA. But let's go back to this price value thing. Yes, right? let's. So if when we're young, we sometimes pay big prices to get big rewards. But after we turn 50, yes. we say, you yeah, know, it's not worth it. This is not worth it to you, Ryu. you? I don't, I, the thing I'm going to get in return for having this meeting with you, not worth it. We're not going to have the meeting. And so what I'm getting at is we can't have black and white issues. You've met people who are into that total honesty thing. Well, that's ridiculous because they refuse to pay anything to societal interaction. And they just say, you know what? You look stupid in those glasses. Well, Okay, but now I don't want to interact with you anymore. Yeah,
0: and this ties into the thing we were talking about at the beginning about talent, right? Because what I really believe is that you believe somewhere deep in you, if we gave you the ultimate lie detector, I think you might believe Bob Dylan is more talented than most people. But does that matter? Does that serve anybody? Is really that? And then yeah, oh, so that's right yeah, it does. That s- does that serve anybody? And so, is the idea right? The 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 whatever percentage of people who are served by not thinking that, by thinking they can go do it because they have enough of whatever that is, sure. Is it worth the even not even? Let's say it's not even a white light, Is it worth
1: even the sort of slight? Right. So I. I am not showing up, knocking on people's doors, saying, how dare you think Bob Dylan has talent? <laughs> if it's working for you to navigate toward where you want to go with the narrative you got, have at it. Yes. One of my jobs is to shine a light on things and maybe you see it a different way. Suggest and a better? Yeah. You.
0: you want to suggest a better? Right. Okay. So this That's is the question, all. right? You're comfortable in your... Because you are... What you're saying is like you're comfortable uh, uh, giving people a narrative that empowers them, whether as yes, zig, like a zig thing, whether that is exactly in line yes. with what your deepest, quietest late at night thought is or not. If the narrative is, I'm asking you, if the narrative
1: will help more oh, so people. So this is a new question. It is. Okay. So the answer to the new question is no, I honestly believe that Bob Dylan does not have supernatural powers. I honestly believe that. I don't know him. I've never met him. But I have met people who are astonishing at what they do. Right? And what do you find is, in, is, is the same about all of them? So what I find about, is the same about all of them is they have a craft. They are not savants.
0: And I guess I think that some small percentage of them I think that's the truth for most people who achieve in an incredible way. They recognized some ability, more than that, or like a love of doing a thing. They worked really hard to get better at that thing. And then suddenly this outsized ambition met this kind of work and they produced and they something of real value. Time. And they got lucky to produced something of real
1: value. Right, so if we look at the people who were the hot stars of Silicon Valley in 1998, Right? Some of them are still around as hot stars today, and most of them you have never heard of again. They made enough money, they moved to Florida, whatever.
0: But is Mark Andreessen born different? See, I think Mark Andreessen is born different, but I don't think it matters because I think there's one Mark Andreessen. And as. How can there be one Mark Andreessen?
1: Well, what do you mean, how can there be? Because, okay, so you're, you're University of Illinois, Champaign, and. The, the web browser needs to be invented and you invent it, right? You meet Jim Clark, a company needs to go public, yes. you go public. So this is a significant cultural moment that you end up with millions and millions of dollars in the right place at the right time at the birth of all this. But two cubicles down is a guy who was working on skin grafts and two cubicles in the other direction is a guy who was working on artificial intelligence and we never heard of either of them.
0: Yet you've told me that personally you think Mark
1: Andreessen is extraordinarily smart. He is. But I said there's not just one of him. There are many, many, many of him. It's just he's the famous one because a whole bunch of things lined up in the right direction. And I'm going to say to the one which who's not means, famous, which is an, you're not defective. The one who's, Which did, is an empowering message because you're saying.
0: And I believe it. Right. It's an empowering message that you believe that served you. I would say it served you to believe it because it allowed you to think you weren't special. You were just able to work hard. That's how it serves us, right? Yeah. By thinking I don't have to have the ego to think I'm Mark Andreessen, right? Uh, because I was raised in a way that uh, that feels uh, that that feels wrong to believe I'm special in that way. Now, on the other hand, Tony Gilroy says the most arguably most successful screenwriter of my generation, or the little old, my, the generation right before me. Tall girl Guerrero thinks uh, he has to walk around New York city long enough to feel special enough to write the thing okay. that he has a secret. But the the truth is find the hack. Yeah. Don't pick the one that makes you feel defeated. Pick the one that makes you feel strong and like you can win.
1: Exactly. And stop cherry picking magic faces on Mount Rushmore that are completely unattainable. So this,
0: this, this John Acuff and I are our, our mutual friend, John Acuff. I, I love, um, uh, and I were talking this morning about books cause he read this thing I wrote about why read, why we should read fiction, which and got hot on Twitter. I'm told you know, these people loved it. Um, well, I, it's incredibly heartfelt for me. It's really, truly what I believe. And I'm just being your hype man. Thank you. Yes. Oh yeah. It became a Twitter moment. It was very exciting in the family. Um, well, it was great because you know you think you write us nine tweets about books, you really don't think anyone's going to care, and then of right. course that became the most popular thing I've ever tweeted. Did the
1: New Yorker call yet?
0: That's funny, but they uh, should. Well, it, it's fine. It's where it belongs. Well, but Acuff said, "Oh, I found that fascinating because it reminded me of the combo you and Seth had about fiction and why Seth doesn't read fiction as much." And and I said to John, "Well, one thing I wanted to ask Seth was." Uh, about how you do stir yourself up. And then John wrote back, and I loved this, and he, he wrote back two things. He said, um, I'm interested in how he even defines stirred up and what the creative benefit of being stirred up would be, because I, I still think one of the most interesting things about Seth is his ability to draw and stick to boundaries that help him be his most creative whether it's staying off Twitter, not reading Amazon reviews, or limiting his fiction intake, I think he's made some good decisions, essentially, understanding the dials that give him the best quality of life and setting them accordingly. So whereas I, Brian, put a primacy on this feeling of being stirred up, of being disturbed, of being emotionally, you know, I read, um, I'm reading this book right now called Angle of Repose by Stegner, and it's sad. Um, And it's about 100 years and this family and mortality and and love and and risks and failure um, and hard-won success. And as I'm reading it every 15 pages, I have to put it down. I I do. I have to put the book down. I have to take my glasses off. And I have to just breathe for a minute. And then I start again. And it really affects my mood for the day. But what I have found for me is that there is an incredible benefit over the next month after I read something like that, for me. yeah. So is getting stirred up in that way that I'm defining it, um, getting emotionally scrambled at times from art, how did you decide whether that's useful to you or not? And are there other ways for you that you get what I get out of
1: that? Okay, well, first the fiction thing John is not about me trying to be more creative. It's a John Acuff. It's me being lazy. If I was willing to work harder, I would read more fiction. Um, the thing about creativity, I think begins with the best form of ego, which is to believe that you have something to say, to believe that you can make things better, that you can contribute something to someone. And so people who are trying to destroy the ego, I don't know how you destroy the ego at the same time that you can care enough to contribute something, right? Um, So what stirs me up creatively is to see helpful solutions to interesting problems. Because if I can see that those are occurring, then that inspires me to look for some too. And if I come up with the beginning of a helpful solution to an interesting problem, then I say, how am I going to share this? So it turns out that cherries grow because they have pits and they're called droops, the kind of fruit that grows around a pit. So the seed, the pit, is this idea. And if I could, I would just say, here's the idea and walk away because it's so much easier But then you have to add all the fruit around it. And that might take a year or two or three of your life to create all the things that the public insists on in order for them to buy the seed. And so that's what I spend most of my day doing. I wish I could spend more of my day just making the little seeds because that's the funnest part for me is seeing that there's a a technology or a problem or, or a personality type saying, oh, what would happen if we did that? And then saying, "Oh, that was interesting," and go on to the next thing. But every once in a while, I take one and I live with it for a year or two or three, so that more people can touch it. And in the end, even though that's not your favorite part, it gives you the the reaction to it or the doing of it gives you some value. Yeah, the craft has to be done because otherwise, I just become a grumpy person in the corner who says, I had all these ideas and no one did anything with them. So I asked this question to every guest, but I don't think I've asked it to you. Or if I did, it was before I knew you this well. It was very early on.
0: Um, how do you check in with yourself? What's the technique by which you quietly check in with yourself? Like, you don't meditate all the time anymore, right? I try, but not
1: well. Do you, you journal? I don't journal. I have many, many books here filled with half ideas, but I don't... Do you have any regular way that you...
0: You certainly talk to, I mean, it's, you talk to your son, I know, a lot, Alex, about stuff. And Mo. And Mo, too, both of them, um, about stuff, and to Helene, your wife, and to your close friends. But how do you, how do you
1: check in with yourself? You know, for me, the journaling and meditating right. is the key. So um, we have a studio here. There's only a few people who work in it. And uh, everyone works from home on Wednesdays. So I come in on Wednesday, and I'm the only person here. And what I have found is uh, that that emptiness causes me to, you know, I'll turn off email, believe it or not, for three full hours. And in that emptiness, I have to fill some voids up and I have to say, well, what is this worth doing? Is that worth doing, et cetera. Um, I don't have a board on purpose because I don't, I've never been good at board meetings, but I have my own board meetings where I will analyze what I've done and where I'm going. And I try to be, deliberate about it, not reactive. Now, one of the things I learned from Zig is if you go to the doctor and she says you're responding to the medicine, that's good. But if she says you're reacting to the medicine, that's bad. So what I have learned through the years is every time I react, I'm making a mistake. And if I can figure out how to respond to inputs instead, then I'll do better work. Well, the work you've been doing is great. Thank the new said. book,
0: This is Marketing, is about a lot more than marketing. People should... Go and... They
1: should take the seminar. It's it's at themarketingseminar.com and opens this week.
0: Take the seminar. Also take uh, Alt-MBA if that seems like something that would be useful to you. I know it's been useful to a great number of people. And um, Seth, I'm so glad to be starting off the year talking to you. Is there anything that you feel like you want to talk to people about here as the year
1: starts that we didn't get to talk about? today? Well, the, the, the one little uh, bit of an aside which I should write up is, the I think the pod apocalypse. how can you move podcast and apocalypse together? I don't know. Podcopalypse Podcopalypse yeah, is Podcopalypse. here So what happened was The apodcalypse. The apodcalypse The apodcalypse is how you do it. So what happened was what was the big change agent as my dad used to teach? The change agent was people started wearing headphones all the time. Once people started wearing headphones all the time they realized they could listen to something other than music. So audiobooks started to increase, but they're expensive. So podcasts filled that gap. And there's been an explosion. I have a podcast, which I like making. You have a podcast, which I love listening to. But there's been an explosion. And the thing is, you can't listen to more than one podcast at a time. It doesn't work. Seth's
0: podcast is called The Kimbo, and worth checking out.
1: And uh, so we've now hit a peak. And we're going to see a big fallout from that. But the thing that's really cool is if you feel creatively stuck, you should start a podcast because even though it's not going to be a home run like the moment, the act of making a podcast is one more version of holding yourself accountable and checking in with yourself. If you didn't get into the whole blogging thing, because it feels really different than tweeting because you make a podcast on Monday, you're not going to hear from anybody about it for months. So it's not that quick endorphin hit that Twitter is optimized for. It's about you leaving a digital legacy is what I'm thinking about right now and having the ego to share an insight with people. So I'm in favor of that. And mostly I think that because I get to interact with so many thousands of people who are smart and helpful and thoughtful, just ship the work. Ship the work. Don't wait for perfect. Perfect is the enemy of very good. Ship the work.
0: All right. Here's to 2019 and shipping the work. You can find Seth Gold. Go-
1: what? What? Who?
0: What? What just happened? Seth Golden. You can find Seth Golden. Uh, he doesn't tweet. So, but this. Is, but if you follow uh, him on Twitter, you'll get uh, linked to the blog posts or. You can just go to SethGoden.com. You can type Seth into any search engine, and he's and on the, Twitter. It's this is Seth's
1: blog. So this is Seth's fake blog. Seth on this is
0: Seth's blog is what you should follow. If you want to find me, I'm at Brian Koppelman on Twitter, getting those endorphin hits. And, um, Or you can email me, the momentbk at gmail.com. Thank you. As the year begins, I just want to say uh, thank you. To all of you who listen and spread the word about the podcast and write to me about the podcast, as Seth said, uh, I get a tremendous amount out of doing it, out of having the conversations and out of having the conversation with all of you. It's not something I take for granted. It's something that's uh, really become crucial to me. So thank you, everybody. And here's to a great year. Seth, thank you for being such a loyal and good friend.
1: So great. This was fun.